Marquee to the Inside, a podcast by Corey Johnson-Levitt. By interviewing leaders from all branches of government, our podcast will provide insight and an up-close perspective into state and national government. Welcome back to another episode of Key to the Inside, the KJL podcast. I am here with my colleague, Ryan Burtka, and we're excited to have two guests talking about uh, not just this fall's election going into the primary season as well to give us an update going into August. So I'll kick it to Ryan to introduce our two esteemed guests. Thanks, Andy. And uh, now that the filing deadline's behind us, uh, we're happy to bring you today John Selleck and Adrian Hedman. Uh, John is the CEO of Harbor Strategic, a public affairs and PR firm with offices in Lansing, Southeast Michigan. Uh, he's been working in Michigan politics for a few decades. He worked for two Michigan speakers of the House, uh, was in the governor's policy shop, two state attorney generals, and has run several uh, presidential gubernatorial campaigns uh, within Michigan. Thank, welcome, John. Uh, Adrian is partner and CEO of Grassroots Midwest, a seasoned political professional with a broad range of experience and expertise. Um, he's an avid traveler, reader of history, uh, martial arts instructor, and uh, he has the experience as a political science instructor at uh, Saginaw Valley State University. He's a former lobbyist and a former chief of staff to the uh, Michigan House Democratic Leader. Welcome, Adrian. First midterm is always difficult on an incumbent president. Uh, the macro environment uh, seems difficult for Democrats. Look like there's some headwinds there for them, just given the historical nature of uh, the president's first term. Uh, can you talk a little bit how you think the macro environment politically is shaping up for both parties? Yeah, well, it's first, it's true to form for every other mid-year cycle, uh, except for maybe like 2002, like Adrian and I talk about a lot, um, you know, the post 9-11 George W. Bush uh, advancement in the U.S. Senate. Um, they had a lot of things go their way that year, and uh, this certainly is not one of those years for the Democrats. And, the, you know, the one way I like to explain it is that voters went from being upset about intentional chaos under the end of President Trump's administration to unintentional chaos uh, under President Biden's administration. And the bottom line is it's the same result either way. So that normally would have been good enough for us to talk about, Andy, but then um, this happened. <laughs> uh, and that overrules everything. And it's horrendous. The Washington Post just put out a list the other day about all the staples, gas, food, chicken, bacon, what you name it, infant formula, um, and the double digit uh, up to 44%, I think was the highest one on gasoline price increases for what people are paying. Uh, and when people can't afford food or they can't even find it on the shelves, that's not a place America's been in very often. We're pretty spoiled on that front. And that anger, frustration, fear, whatever word you wanna put on it or multiple words, that can literally undo every single thing that Governor Whitmer does correctly going this election, that's what keeps Democrats up at night. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The The fundamentals of this election cycle, both Michigan and nationally, are wretched for Democrats. John mentioned the midterm election. Even for a president facing his first midterm, Joe Biden's pretty unpopular right now. Um, like I said, even with those historical factors taken into account, the inflation thing is obviously a huge issue. It's number one kitchen table issue. Um, and there, there have been some other missteps there with Afghanistan, some things like that. You know, so there's an accumulation of factors there beyond just the normal structural factors around the midterm that, um, you know, on its face, not knowing anything about candidates or the dynamics within the parties would tell you, Democrats are in for a really bad time. There are some reasons why that might not be the case, 
But just in terms of the fundamentals of the election cycle, you know, for a, a neutral observer, you would think Democrats would have a really bad year. So let's now, we started at national macro, take it down to the state. I know John could make it last night, or Adrian was at the first GOP debate. I watched. Um, my first I watched. question is if anyone can name all the GOP gubernatorial candidates in a row, I will buy you a bottle of whatever you drink uh, as your favorite, because uh, I still struggle to rattle them all off. So I think I might be able to do this. So um, let me start with the hard ones. So you got Marky, right? Um, Captain Mike Brown, uh, Ralph Rebrandt, Donna Brandenburg. Uh, I mean, at least until the 26th, you got James Craig. Um, you've got uh, Perry Johnson, Tudor Dixon, Garrett Soldano, uh, Ryan Kelly, and uh, who's that last one? Um, I got nine out of ten. That's not bad. Well, it was one. Who was it that he missed? Kevin Rinky. Kevin Rinky. Oh yeah. Well, a lot of people are missing Kevin Rinky considering the <laughs> amount of money that he spent. Uh, you know, you, you would hope your name ID and your uh, you know your call numbers would be a little higher than that. But yeah, the GOP debate last night was super interesting, and that does sort of lead us down the garden path of why not only do Democrats have a fighting chance, but the governor's a pretty heavy favorite for re-election right now. The GOP gubernatorial primary is a mess. Um, when you say that, absentee ballots go in the mail in a month. Not only do they not have a nominee, but right now, um, based on the poll that uh, Glenn Gariff Group put out um, yesterday, um, for the Detroit Chamber, um, undecided is running away with this race on the GOP side. Um, the number uh, number two behind undecided is former Detroit Police Chief James Craig, who will not be in the race um, come the board of canvassers, if not sooner, um, because of the massive fraud in his petitions. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Richard Shuba asked respondents um, who their second choice was. A majority of James Craig supporters said they did not have a second choice. So what that means is that undecided is rolling at about 60% when you consider the candidates that'll actually be in this race. And again, absentee ballots go in the mail in a month. Um, that's uh, that is a huge gift to the governor. Um, that there's uh, there's not a presumptive GOP nominee right now. There's not even really a front runner, um, and that's shocking. Um, as far as the debate last night went, and I think this is another thing that Governor Whitmer has going for her. The only two candidates that really distinguished themselves of that debate last night are, are two of the hardest right candidates, right? Which is Garrett Saldano and Ryan Kelly. Um, they got the biggest reactions in that room, um, both because of the positions that they staked out, but also it was pretty apparent watching that those two are the most charismatic candidates on that stage. They have the most personality. Um, Kevin Rinke has a lot of money, a little, little short on the personality. Um, Perry Johnson did okay at the beginning of that debate. He, debate, he was clearly getting tired by the end. That's not 100% his fault. The, deba the debate went over time by about 45 minutes, um, and it was getting pretty late, and he's a little bit older. I mean, I was getting tired for my sake, and he, you know, he's 30 years older than I am. Look at these um, smooth so knifings Adrian does. He is so <laughs> good at this. Ageism. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, I think that it was a great night for Governor Whitmer last night. Um, it was a good night for uh, Garrett Saldano, decent night for Ryan Kelly. Um, you know, I think some of the folks that you that have been thought of as the front runners are in pretty rough shape. Uh, Chief Craig's not going to make the 
the ballot. Tudor Dixon may or may not make the ballot, but she's currently polling at 1.8% with 17% name ID, which is wretched, um, considering, again, those ballots go in the mail in a month. Um, and then you've got Kevin Rinke, who has spent a boatload of money and is still polling at around 5%. Um, so the, uh, you know, the, that's not great. Perry Johnson, kind of a wild card here because he has boatloads of money, but he's not polling much better than Kevin Rinke right now. So the, 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 the missing factor in all of this is the Trump factor. Right. Um, any one of these candidates get a, gets a Trump endorsement and they get a 20 point bump minimum in the polls, basically overnight. Well, the GOP does have a front runner, runner and his name is James Craig. Um, he's been leading the race for a year now, if you can believe that. He jumped into the race last May. And just from an outside observational standpoint, I've got no stake in it as a it's just it's sad, shocking, disappointing to see what this campaign could have been. And perhaps it never could have succeeded because of the candidate himself kind of looks that way right now but this is somebody that could have easily run away with this primary and you you see mostly the the reason for that is the strength in southeast michigan that the gop normally drools over the idea of having that kind of voting strength in southeast michigan They've, they they don't normally see it um we certainly didn't have it uh in 2018 when we had brian Kelly and bill shooty and patrick kolbeck and Jim Hines, we didn't see it then. We didn't have it when Dick Voss was on the on the on the ticket. Just even Rick Snyder, it hasn't happened. So um the, the way that campaign is falling apart or has been falling apart from the start is something that'll be studied and talked about for a long time. And it's not a surprise, therefore, that his petition his petition signatures seem to be so bollocked and so screwed up. Um collecting fifteen thousand accurate signatures, which really means you need to collect like twenty to twenty-five thousand to be safe is not an easy task. And it's really strange because normally that number of signatures is the bar or the barrier to entry to keep most of these sort of like activist gadfly candidates out of the campaign. Yet what we're gonna see is potentially the top three be disqualified and will be left with a bunch of folks who in the past never would have qualified to run for governor. So that's pretty interesting in the GOP part. And what that tells us is that Donald Trump helped unleash a, a movement uh, and energy amongst outside of regular folks who all believe that they can be governor and why shouldn't they run. Um, and when you look at the Detroit Chamber polling that came out yesterday, um, Ryan Kelly is sitting there uh, basically tied for second place with Kevin Rinke and Perry Johnson, and he's not spent any money. There's that tried and true uh, thing of the Irish name for uh, the judicial side of politics in Michigan, and it's working for him at least in this poll there. And for Kevin Rinke to have spent millions and be at five and Perry Johnson to have spent twice as much, at least and be at 5% uh, is pretty concerning if we just lock James Craig off the top. Now, as an aside, I'll say, watching what's happened with James Craig, should some reason he remain on the ballot and no one, no one else is able to take him down, there's a lot of people in the GOP that are scared of him being the nominee because his campaign basically won't be functioning. Um, uh, even though I think a uh, high quality James Craig candidacy would have been a huge problem for the Democrats. I'll just note a couple of things real quick out of that polling information. Garrett Saldano uh, up into second place uh, at 8%. He's been in a lot of these polls, this 8 to 10% 8 to 10 range, but his name idea is only 26%. And the amount of money that Kevin Rinke and uh, Perry Johnson have spent, um, they're both basically at 40% name ID. 
which means Garrett Sodano has accomplished something with much lower name ID and he's got a lot higher of a ceiling. It's just a question of whether he could get any more funds to keep going, which is why everybody suspects there's essentially a Tudor Dixon project going on to get that Trump endorsement like Adrian talked about and see if they can bump her up from where in this poll she was at 1.7%. Long way to go. Yeah, that is a long way to go. Um, taking a step even a little more micro, so we have the macro environment on uh, the national level and then the gubernatorial level, um, we're in uncharted territory. We have redistricted maps that, uh, I mean, I think the House, what, 21 seats that uh, were less than five, or five points between uh, Peters and James. Um, so just a really, really big uh, battlefield. Um, like Michigan hasn't experienced in a very long time uh, in the path through the Senate is not as wide, but um, still probably five to six seats that are really um, in play. And I guess, how are you guys thinking about that? How does that macro environment affect that? And what are you watching in these races going into the primary? So it's interesting, um, that 21 number might even be low. You know, if you calculate um, base numbers the way that we typically do with like, you know, State Board of Education races, the number is actually closer to 30 um, seats that could, depending on the year, potentially be competitive between the two parties um, in the House. That's shocking, right? Um, the Senate, the numbers are going to be smaller just because there are fewer seats, right? There's only 38 senators. Um, <clears throat> Republicans have controlled the Michigan Senate since 1983. Um, and the idea that Democrats could flip the chamber sometime over the next 10 years, which if the map stays the same, they will sometime in the next 10 years, is just shocking. I was seven years old the last time there was a Democratic majority in the Michigan Senate. Um, so that, that's a seismic change in Michigan politics. With the fundamentals that we talked about at the top of the podcast, it, neither of these should be in reach for them. Um, they're probably not this year, but the top of the ticket for Republicans is in just terrible shape. We talked about the gubernatorial race, the fact that they're, you know, eons away from having a nominee. Um, but the next two things on the ballot don't look great for Republicans either. Um, in, you know, conspiracy theorist Matt DiPerno, and I, if he's a conspiracy theorist, I don't know what you call uh, Christina Caramo, you know, I mean, I, I, saying that yoga is a satanic ritual is going to play beautifully in Oakland County. That's I another reason why I don't, I should not exercise. It's <laughs> right? It's satanic. You shouldn't do it. Um, but I mean, that, that's a drag on Republicans, which means that are Democrats going to flip either chamber this year? Probably not right because of those bad fundamentals but they do have a chance if the top of the ticket collapses you know the the governor won by eight points in 2018. um if that happens this time and i don't expect it to but if she wins by eight points all bets are off anything could happen um that's a washout right if she wins by two or three points yeah, they're not flipping either chamber, right? Um, these A lot of these seats are so closely drawn that the fundamentals will tell there. Um, at, you know, the two to three to four point level, the fundamentals will drag Republicans across the finish line. But if she wins in a washout, who knows? Yeah, I essentially agree with Adrian on all that. The Senate certainly has a, a, a tighter path, fewer seats that are in play. Naturally, more incumbents and people have run for office before. We're going to see a couple slugfests there, like we've talked about, like Mike Weber and, and uh, Representative Kuma, Kupa, uh, Kupa. Sorry, I've got a cold and I cannot talk. Um, the House is different. Um, the House has just this unbelievable, massive open area of seats. We talked about as many as 30. We've got way more people running like because of term limits for the first time 
um, way more unpredictability, both in fundraising, unpredictability in uh, what they're going to say and what they're going to do while they're out there running on the campaign trail. And then on the GOP side, we've got way more primaries, way more multiple primaries, some of which are, are civil war battle between the MAGA lane and the traditional conservative lane, whereas the Democrats have either by choice or because there's less energy in their party, they have fewer primaries or fewer big primaries on their side. So there's a lot of things to watch there, even though you'd have to say the the, the overarching stuff that's going on uh, nationally is gonna really affect that. But I think Adrian does have a good point. Um, whether it's the GOP candidate for governor who doesn't get their act together, or we're looking at what comes right under that, if there's a secretary of state and AG race, where there's a real focus on those candidates. Um, they've got a lot of weaknesses. No one knows what they are right now. The public has no idea who Christina Cramo and, and Matt DiPerno are. Heck, they barely know who Dana Nessel and Jocelyn Benson are. I've been through AG races a bunch of times. People don't tune into those things until late. So there's gonna be a lot of work to be done on the Democrat side to get that information out, depending on how much the money they wanna even spend on it, depending on how Governor Whitmer is doing. That could be an issue. And where that really struck a chord was in Kent County just a couple of weeks ago in the special house election, where a seat that had elected Donald Trump twice and elected Mark Heisinger three times by margins of 60% or more flipped over and voted for a Democrat for the first time in a bazillion years. In Kent County, a very conservative place, but they also like their manners. And the, the Republican candidate there did not fit the mold. Uh, and you can argue that he's not a whole lot different than what the AG and Secretary of State nominees are for the GOP right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, two things on that. Number one, the fundamental dynamic of the 2020 election was that people wanted to vote for the candidate they thought was less weird, right? And that was Joe Biden. Um, pe people are tired of the weirdness and the chaos. And right now, um, I don't think that the fundamental dynamic is that much different for people who are not party activists on either side, right? The party activists are trying to pull people in this direction, but about two thirds of Americans are just tired. They're exhausted. And whichever party can pretend to be normal at a clip, you know, for a few months here, they're gonna do really well. Like normalcy sounds great. That's why everybody voted, you know, so many people voted for the sleepy old granddad that was spending all his time in his basement. Absolutely. That sounded appealing to Americans um, in 2020. Whoever can replicate that magic is gonna do really, really well. The other thing, and I hate to turn this into just like a commercial for Andy and Ryan, um, there's gonna be a minimum of 90 new members in the legislature next year, regardless of partisanship. So um, if you were thinking about asking them to take a haircut, don't do that. They're gonna be overworked next year, trying to get to know all of these new knuckleheads who are about to get elected. I was just gonna say, I mean, what Adrian's talking about is correct. Definitely on Andy and Ryan, they need a, they need a pay increase. Um, it is going to be a whole lot of coffees and dinners and door days and all that other good stuff. Um, but that's why they're good at their jobs. But when we look at what Adrian described as who can act normal for a few minutes, they also are going to have to reflect the fear and outrage. Depends on who you're talking to when you're talking about inflation. It's one of those two words, basically. But what the governor has done over the last six, eight months is to try her best to look normal. Um, not her fault she got stuck with COVID, but she made a lot of decisions during that time. She's tried not to have to talk about it anymore. She keeps trying to talk about normal stuff, small businesses, getting people back to work, um, getting things back to normalcy across the board. The abortion issue dropped in her lap. That's a separate thing from what I'm talking about. 
Um, but I think her pollster is the same pollster as Joe Biden's pollster, John Anzalone. And he said a couple of weeks ago that don't let any Democratic consultant bullshit you. Sorry, that was his French, not mine. Um, we're in for a really bad year, a really, really bad year. And uh, folks like to govern on their own for their first few years. And if things aren't going well, they turn to their pollster. And I have a feeling we've seen where the governor's team turned to their pollster last summer and said, okay, we really got to get serious here on focusing on at least let me show incremental things that I'm doing that seem normal and good. And when you look at the governor's polling numbers, they're soft. And we are in a new era where it's hard to have a positive approval rating. But remember, polling numbers usually shows two things about these top of the ticket people their job approval rating, like how they're doing their job and their personal approval rating. And what we see normally is that the governor's personal approval rating is higher than her job approval rating. So if somebody likes you, you probably are gonna get forgiveness a little bit easier than if they didn't. Um, and that's that place that she is in right now, kind of steady the ship, talk about as many key things as you can. And almost everything she talked about from the state of the state forward is about inflation, whether it's free checks in the mail for your car insurance, um, or tax cuts that she's still working on with the legislature. Like, how can I address inflation and get money back in your pocket and talk about those kitchen table issues? Um, and you combine that with the fact that her personal approval rating isn't so bad, she probably is in a decent place. I'm gonna step on Ryan's next question. Sorry, Ryan, I'll let you have the mic here in a second. But thinking back to 2010, I, I, I look at this crazy primary landscape for Republicans and look at the US Senate when Harry Reid held on by a point and a half against a woman whose healthcare prescription or plan was to trade chickens for healthcare. Then Christine O'Donnell in Delaware was, you know, had to come out and do direct a camera to say she wasn't a witch because she had been doing, I can't remember if she was accused or what the deal was with that. And then there's the Todd Aiken rape situation in Missouri where somehow we held on to a seat in Missouri. Um, and I just think that, that, you know, who knows? I mean, is there a Carol Glanville replicated a few times over in this primary environment? And that's, you know, for me, looking towards August, you know, trying to I'm put myself in your guys' issue a little bit. That's the piece that would keep me up at night if I was a GOP house consultant uh, and how to manage yeah. that issue for them. You know? the, person, the person who sticks out to me in that description that will give Republicans problems um, is in the third congressional seat against Peter Meyer. Um, Allison, I'm blanking her name because you just said Carol. What's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. Now the GOP candidate is the most one of the more sane people the GOP has, which is <laughs> the problem for us um, there. But she fits that mold like you're talking about. Like Carol, um, she acts almost like a Republican, just very commonsensical. I go to church. I um, care about small business. I care about families, and it puts them in that place where they're not in the super far left, aggressive, crazy wing of your of your party. Um, but I don't know if that's the case that we're going to come out. We have so many primaries to go through in the legislative branch. Uh, there's going to be a, a real battle there on that front. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's um, that that dynamic is more likely to play out when you have um, a heads up primary between somebody from sort of the far right and what I would call a normie, right? Um, and, and you'll see some scenarios where that could play out. But just sort of looking through the um, the legislative primaries, which we've been doing a lot of, you also have a lot of instances where you've got three people that are trying to occupy the Trump lane or two people that are competing over that lane. Um, and that 
could provide an opportunity for someone normal, you know, to cruise through a primary at like 25, 30%, um, while, you know, the real hardcore folks are chopping up the rest of the vote. Um, so I, uh, I, I think that there are some opportunities that'll present themselves for Democrats there, but they shouldn't be pinning all their hopes on that. I think that, um, you know, 2010 is actually a great example for this. Democrats still got annihilated. Oh, yeah. Um, we just managed to hang on in a few places where we probably shouldn't have because of missteps by the GOP. And I think that, you know, if we have a close gubernatorial election, we're going to be seeing some of that in the legislature. Again, if it's a washout, then it may not matter. But if it's a close gubernatorial election, there probably will be some opportunities for Democrats in some of those seats if they can replicate that dynamic where you've got, you know, normal seeming Carol Glanville against, you know, certifiable lunatic R.J. Regan. Yeah, you're going to pull some of those rabbits out of the hat. We saw some of that positioning last night in the governor's debate uh, where Kevin Rinke and uh, Perry Johnson, who must both think they're not in line for the Trump endorsement anymore because that Tudor Dixon project I talked about, they actually said, yeah, Joe Biden probably won the election. Um, the others did not do that. We were booed lustily for that, by the way, at the event. Well, you were in a room of 700 people here in Livingston County, so. <laughs> Uh, sorry to step on you, Ryan. Take it away, man. Oh, no, I just, I just hope Adrian gets a COVID test after that event. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with numbers speaking back up. All right. Well, you know, you get, John, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, you know, outrage, and um, you know, I think both of you touched on the James Craig signature issue, and I think that kind of leads into our next set of questions. On well, one, why signatures are so hard to get? You know, there seems to be a million ballot petitions out there, and from my understanding. You know, it's the contracting, the contract signers, they're they're getting paid lots of money. The cost went up like astronomically this cycle. So, well, we'll put you on the spot again, Adrian. Can you name all the ballot petitions that are currently live and active? Absolutely not. I know that there is... <laughs> <laughs> there's the uh, uh, there's the abortion access, pro-choice, whatever you want to call it, um, petition effort that's out there, uh, you know, to spike the old 1931 law. Um, there's a $15 minimum wage uh, ballot proposal, which is cute. Good luck hiring anybody for less than $15 an hour right now. Um, there are two competing ballot access proposals, one from Dem-aligned interest groups, one from Republican-aligned interest groups, um, cluttering up the ballot. And there's some other cats and dogs on there too. Um, there's uh, they don't need signatures, but there's a term limits reform effort that's going to be on the ballot that the legislature, in very self-serving fashion, decided uh, they would vote to put on the ballot. Um, so the the environment's very polluted as far as how this uh, impacts signature collection um, for a gubernatorial candidate like James Craig shouldn't have made a difference at all. Um, to John's point, he's been in the race for a year. It's really hard to get signatures right now, predictably, because people are trying to get ballot access for statewide ballot initiatives, which you do in the spring of an on year. Um, but I mean, the the real sort of shocking thing about this from the perspective of the James Craig campaign specifically is um, having a year to do that. Like if the four of us each went and found a friend and we quit our jobs and we all worked full time, you know, 40, 50 hours a week for a year, we could get 15,000 ballot signatures, eight of us. Um, that's just, you know, I mean, his consultants are just stealing from him at that point. No one is running the logistics of a campaign. You can have all the great strategy ideas in the world, but if you don't secure ballot access, 
none of that matters. And that's where the Craig campaign finds itself right now. That's the sort of work you should have been doing last year, um, and they were not. I always joke that getting yourself out of the ballot, collecting those signatures, it's like when you become a homeowner and you're thinking, man, I'm going to paint my house a sweet color. I'm going to put a hot tub out on the deck. I'm going to get some great speakers out there. And they're like, oh, no, you need to replace the chimney. You're like, <laughs> dang it. That's not fun. I'm not going to sit there and look at my chimney and be excited about that. And that's what has to happen. I mean, I remember all the way back to one of my first campaigns working for Governor Engler. And we were thinking, yeah, oh, boy, let's just like get to like 20,000 or something. And then the word came on down from a height. No, you'll get 30,000. Yes, sir. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> you know, that's what we did. Right. Um, there's a lot of factors that make petition gathering difficult. Number one is your campaign's organization. If you don't have one, like James Craig seems to struggle with, that's not going to happen. Uh, you don't want to have to pay for all your signatures. You're hoping that you've built some kind of grassroots network or you have some kind of grassroots support to get that boost. And maybe you do, you know, a little of both uh, to get yourself over the line. It'd be better to have too many signatures than too little. Um, secondly, in Michigan, we have the worst weather that ever existed on the planet Earth. So what we're now experiencing 80 degrees for the first time. And as usual, we had no spring. We went from cold and nasty and wet to super hot. And so the ability to be standing outside collecting signatures all winter is really tough. That's why we've seen that some of these ballot initiatives, Ryan, um, that are have to collect signatures in this 180 day window, but it slides. Um, they've already had to cut off the front end, uh, November, where they started because they don't have enough signatures yet. And so they're gonna have to collect later into this year, which means they have to disqualify all their front end ones and recollect those. Um, that weather is tough. And then when you look at, when you have, it used to be that Michigan wasn't the governed by uh, a constitutional amendment and, and a legislative initiative, um, but we're turning into that. Um, like we used to joke about California had 50 things on the ballot every year. When you do that, the marketplace for labor in an environment when the labor force is already completely screwed up, creates all this incentive for theft and fraud. And uh, as one professional petition gathering company once told me, we're not exactly hiring uh, people who have you know, normally full-time jobs that are excited about getting to work every day. They're doing this for the money and they're getting out. And you've read many times about how these folks are being imported on buses from Florida, Arkansas, wherever they can find them. That means they're just putting ads uh, on Craigslist or whatever saying, hey, make uh, you know, $100 a day and we'll give you a hotel room and all the beer you can drink at night, come collect signatures. Um, so you mix all that together and it's it's not really gonna be a recipe for success. Right. Well, and the other problem, you alluded to this, John, but um, in addition to the sort of inflationary pro uh, pressures, right, um, that are driving up the cost of doing everything, is the distortions in the labor market that have been brought about by the pandemic. Um, nowhere is that more obvious than in the signature collection business, right, in that industry. Um, because, and we've seen this play out in all kinds of other industries now, right? Um, it's, it's hammering some industries like restaurants. You have to pay a premium now if you expect people to show up in a location every day, right? That costs additional money. That didn't used to be the case. That used to be the expectation, right? Was that you, you know, you show up nine to five every day or whatever your shift was, and then you clock out and you go home. That's not the expectation anymore. You have to pay a premium for that. Um, and particularly when where you have to show up is a street corner when you don't know what the weather is going to look like that day or, you know, how people are going to be or what events are going on or whether you're going to get much foot traffic to get signatures because you're typically being paid per signature. You really have to pay a premium for that. And, you know, two years ago, you know, we, we do some of this work as a firm two years ago paying about $5 a signature. Now you can expect to pay between $15 and $20 a signature. 
And that doesn't mean you're getting quality work. It's really an incentive for folks to cheat, which is probably what's happened to James Craig and some of the others. And while you can criticize their team for not having closely reviewed the signatures or doing their due diligence on who they were hiring, you know, when you're a campaign that was like expected to just be on the ballot and you're getting close to the deadline and it's not there and someone says, all right, pay me $30 signature, I'll get them. You're just trying to get them in the door and turn them in and it looks like that's what happened. So do you think any of these ballot initiatives actually get on outside of the term limits, which is approved by the legislature, as you mentioned, Adrian, any of these other ballot initiatives actually make it to the ballot in November? Do you think, and do you think that helps turnout on either side, Republican or Democrat? Abortion will be on and it'll drive turnout on both sides, 100%. Um, I think it might be a slight advantage um, for Democrats, but that's not necessarily set in stone. Um, but that one will make it on. Um, they'll probably have their signatures by the end of this month, to be blunt. That's an example of where you do, you have an army of people who are super zealous about this issue, right? Um, there's a big statewide event going on tomorrow right, in Lansing, in Ann Arbor, in Detroit, where um, all of these women are turning out to protest and to get signatures, right, um, all over the state. They'll have their signatures by the end of the month. They'll be on the ballot. Um, well, so, they, yeah, I, I think that would take We're fortunate to have, you know, a, a once in every, what is it, 20-year leak out of the U.S. Supreme Court to give them kind of a, a boost there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it absolutely did. Um, and I think that, so I think that one will make the ballot. You know, the $15 minimum wage thing, maybe, um, you know, that, that maybe, again, because uh, like I talked about with that full-time employee model, right, you can you can release employees of labor unions to go and get signatures for that if you so choose. Um, and so if you, you know, if you've got people that are just being paid a salary and they're out there with their colleagues, you, you might be able to make the, uh, the ballot with that. Uh, both of the ballot access um, uh, petition efforts seem to be reasonably well-funded, so they might make them. But here's the thing, we don't know, right? Um, it's really, really hard to get a signature firm to do any work at all right now. Um, I'm, I've just dealt with a situation like this over the last couple of days um, where we had some folks, not even for a statewide initiative, um, but for something local that wanted to go out and gather signatures. And I have talked to seven different petition collection firms in the last 48 hours, both based in Michigan um, and outside the state. And every single one of them has not only told me no, but when I told them to name their price to do the work, they said, no, we can't do it. And on top of that, we've even seen the accusations this week of some groups paying petition gathering firms not to gather signatures to try to limit their opponent's ability to get onto the ballot. It has <laughs> turned out to be quite the, the battleground. Yeah, green mail, that's great. You know, I mean, if you're running a business and somebody's going to pay you not to work, I mean, what's better? <laughs> uh, I would love to hear an estimate of what you think the total political spending will be in the state of Michigan. Uh, I mean, I think we're a little bit in uncharted territories. Michigan moved kind of firmly back into the swing state category. We have three to four of the most competitive U.S. house races in the nation. Um, we have probably the most competitive state legislative map in the nation. The governor's already reserved $23 million in television time. I should say uh, the DGA has already reserved $23 million in television time. Uh, so then the other statewide. So um, A, do you have a guess at total spend? Uh, and then can you talk through kind of which congressionals you're watching and um, how you're watching those races to shape up? So Adrian, I'll let you start this one. Sure. Um, so the real answer is that you're never going to know 
what the total spend is um, because for everything that you're going to see reported on campaign finance reports, you can take that number and double it for what's going to be spent through these dark money nonprofits, um, you know, 501c4 organizations that are allowed to do issue advocacy, um, and you'll never know how much that was um, or who was giving the money. In terms of hard dollar spend, um, we're probably going to get close to a billion dollars in Michigan um, in political spending. Wow. Yeah, sure. Even if you're only doing back of the napkin math, just in the governor's race alone, if you say 20 for Whitmer, if it's Perry Johnson, 20 from him, and then 20 to 50 from the DGA and the RGA, and you're at 100 already right there. Yeah. And each of those congressionals are going to be 15 minimum. Could be, I mean, could be, I mean, Southeast Michigan races will be north of probably 30 all in. So uh, good time to be a uh, ad salesperson. Um, in Michigan. So, uh, John, you want to talk a little bit about the congressional map and what we're seeing um, and kind of getting back to the redistricting commission again, uh, four of the most competitive races in the country uh, in a very narrow house map, right? They really only have 25 maybe races that are legitimately um, close to toss-ups and, you know, Michigan's got a quarter of them. So, yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, you have to remember that we lost a seat uh, because we keep declining or relatively sitting still in population while other states grow. So we, again, lost a seat for, I don't know, four decades in a row or something like that. So that's a problem. Um, and that sets up sort of the first uh, two races of interest. Uh, John James uh, running for Congress in the new Macomb seat where Andy Levin decided not to move into Macomb, stay where he's at in Oakland. Uh, so you have John James against a Democrat field that doesn't look all that strong right now. Um, as Adrian has pointed out, uh, when all is said and done, the one African-American representative in Congress from Michigan could be a Republican, uh, John James, when we're all said and done. That, of course, set up what is just a bonkers uh, blockbuster primary over in Oakland County uh, between two heavyweights right now the, of the new energy side of the party um, and then of the, the, the sign of the old uh, Levin legacy, uh, Haley Stevens versus uh, Andy Levin. And that has already been a slugfest, to put it politely. Um, that's been wild and crazy. Then I mentioned earlier the third congressional district, Peter Myers being hit from all sides. Uh, the first vote he had to take right out of the box was a vote of his conscience, and it was an obvious one. He had a vote for impeachment because of what happened on January 6th. So he was already marked for death right there. Um, so he is facing a primary. His seat was redistricted and made far worse than it used to be. And then he has a repeat opponent who is a quality opponent and will be well-funded in Hillary Shulton, like we talked about. The GOP did manage to like miss one bullet. Um, unfortunately, Fred Upton choosing to retire and not have to battle uh, Bill Heisinger um, because of the way they got redistricted together. So they, they, they missed one there. And I'll turn it over to Adrian. Yeah, and uh, John didn't even mention what is potentially the most expensive congressional race in the country, um, which is Slotkin versus Barrett. Um, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin has almost as, about as much cash on hand as Governor Whitmer. Um, that's a lot of money. Um, and she still hasn't taken any money from corporate PACs yet. So um, obviously, if she rings the alarm, there's, there's plenty of that money to go out and grab as well. Um, she's crushing her opponent, Tom Barrett, in hard dollar fundraising. However, um, we already talked about how bad the fundamentals of the electoral environment are for Democrats. And notwithstanding Congresswoman Slotkin being very moderate, a rock star fundraiser, 
Um, Tom Barrett um, has a sterling biography, the military service, the beautiful family. He's won tough elections before. Uh, full disclosure, he's a former client of our firm. We helped him unseat a Democratic incumbent when he first ran for the state house and then defeat her again two years later when she came back for a rematch. So Tom's been in hard races. He's a very hard worker. Um, you know, everything on paper about him is right to try and take her on in this seat. Um, I do think that, you know, a, again, a lot of that's going to depend on the top of the ticket, but there are just going to be boatloads of money being poured into that race by the candidates, um, by the respective congressional campaign committees, uh, by a lot of these outside interest groups, by a 501c4 organizations that you're never going to see. Um, you know, and unfortunately, um, I live in that congressional district. I think some of the rest of us do. And I would just recommend, you know, starting about September, just don't turn your television on. <laughs> uh, the, the small dollar national fundraising power of the Democratic Party couldn't be um, have a better example than uh, Alyssa Slotkin. Um, she's been a stunningly effective uh, fundraiser. Uh, Haley Stevens has done fairly well, but not as well. As Slotkin, um, and that does put Tom Barrett uh, behind the ball a little bit there, but he knew that. Um, this race is going to get gobs of attention, um, and it's going to start on the ground here because that seat is based around Lansing. That's where all the capital media that covers our politics in Michigan lives. They're going to be stuck watching the same ads that we are all going to be stuck watching, um, and so I expect that to have plenty of the the national political reporters dropping in to take the flavor of the temperature of what's going on in these contested races. We're gonna see a lot of Tom Barrett and Alyssa Slotkin on TV, both here and nationally. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, so you, we mentioned the GOP debate earlier. Um, I actually ran into Senator Barrett, um, our former client, um, after the debate last night, and we were, we were chopping it up for a few minutes. Um, you know, Tom recognizes that, you know, he has an uphill battle, but he's not scared. Um, you know, he's um, he's committed to doing the work and um, you know, he's got his family behind him. Um, you know, as long as if the fundamentals of the environment are more important than the top of the ticket this year, then he'll be competitive and he might pull it off. Um, you know, if the top of the ticket collapses for Republicans, then I don't see a way for him to make it. But there's no guarantee that that happens. I mean, for as bad a position as the top of the ticket is in for Republicans right now, because the fundamentals are so bad for Democrats, if Republicans can quickly unify around a candidate, once we get past the state board of canvassers and one or more of these candidates get kicked off, um, they still have a decent chance depending on who that nominee is. You know, if it, if it is a Garrett Saldano or a Ryan Kelly, Katie bar the door, right? It could be really bad. Oh, but I mean, if they, if they find a way to get Tudor Dixon that Trump endorsement, you know, she gets a 20 point bump in the polls, um, then, you know, it could be game on. And I, what I expect to see, whether it's Tudor Dixon or someone else, somebody's getting the Trump endorsement the week of the Mackinac Policy Conference will be passed. Um, the state board of canvassers, so we will know which candidates have ballot access and which ones don't. And that's the time of maximum impact for a Trump endorsement, right? Rolling into that Mackinac policy conference, if he endorses on Monday of that week, right? It's all anyone will be talking about. Adrian can't help himself. And that's how he likes Adrian, it. Adrian's always being really logical and orderly. He's plotting for President Trump on how to be orderly and logical. Come on. <laughs> you know what? The Donalds doesn't listen thing, to me, John. as it turns I was out. The same thing, John. Uh, yeah, and Andy, you know, I'm just—I don't think we can emphasize this um, this this fundraising advantage Democrats have had for a while. Um, in your experience working in Congressman for Congressman Kildee, um, the, the for whatever reason, we can go over it 
in detail, but we're not going to here. The Democrats have been excellent, excellent at this. And the only Republican who's even come close to playing in that ball game is John James. Um, he knows how to go on Fox News and turn those uh, hits into dollars. That is why we see James Craig show up on Fox News all the time, but it hasn't had the same effect. John James has been able to play that game like in the same league as Alyssa Slotkin and, and Haley Stevens. And that's why you don't see, uh, for a couple other factors, but why you don't see a good uh, Democrat running in that seat against John James. Yeah, it was one of the things when Craig first got nom or first got into the race, I thought the same thing, but it's one thing to go on there. It's another thing to have the infrastructure to kind of create that funnel to bring that money in. And uh, they clearly missed a, just an exceptional opportunity to, to probably put this thing away early by raising a lot of that money. So um, on that note, uh, rolling into maybe our, our uh, last and final questions here, um, maybe we start with who of the three that are being challenged, which will make the ballot, which won't. And then if you had to pick today, who's the nominee for the GOP side? Uh, this is usually where I'm like, wait, is this microphone working? Can you hear me? <laughs> Loud and clear, John. Loud and clear. Um, there are plenty of election lawyers who are whispering behind the scenes. They could see all three getting knocked off. And, and the date that that will be determined that Adrian kind of touched on when he said the board of canvassers earlier is May 26th. So it's at not until the end of this month. And that presents a challenge for those candidates who aren't self-funders like Tudor Dixon, how you keep asking for money when there's a possibility you won't be a candidate, right? That's a, a side issue that's going on where as Perry Johnson doesn't have that problem, but James Craig does. Um, the best case scenario, it would appear that James Craig gets knocked off and that Perry Johnson loses signatures, but still has enough to get on by some of the evidence I've seen and that Tudor Dixon and her issue is far more technical. Um, we've seen people excluded from the ballot for technical issues, like in the first congressional in 2018, the Democrat got knocked off the ballot for using a PO box instead of a street address, even though it was accurate. So it very well could happen. Um, so I tend to think that we're gonna see Tudor Dixon and Perry Johnson still on the ticket. And the way some of the language was being used at the debate last night and most of the scuttlebutt you hear, you know, President Trump seems to want to endorse Tudor Dixon. He's talked about her a lot. She's hired all these people that are down there at Mar-a-Lago working for the president, whispering in his ear about Tudor Dixon. Um, and he's held off on that endorsement. And I think because he wanted to see what she could do. And it's been difficult for her to do that. But we're getting kind of down to brass tacks. Perry Johnson also made a play for that endorsement. But, you know, last night he said uh, that Trump didn't win the election, basically. And so my guess is Perry Johnson will keep right on going. He's got all the money he needs. and like. Too many of the politicians we know, he's got the ego. He wants to be governor. Uh, who wants to be governor? Terrible job. Um, if Adrian and I ever struck it rich, we will not be running for office. That's not what we're doing. Uh, good luck to them. We need somebody in there to do a good job. But I think we'll see, we'll still see a Perry Johnson versus Tudor Dixon and then Kevin Rinke with his spending as long as he keeps it going at the top of the ticket is my guess. So, you know, I, I, I talked to one of these election uh, attorneys that John referenced, um, who I respect a lot. And he says all three of them are going to go um off the ballot and he's a republican for what it's worth um you know there's the signature issue for um for james craig potentially for perry johnson the tudor dixon issue is more technical but um you know you are not required by law to put a um the date of your term on your nominating petitions um she chose to do so and she put the wrong date you are required it is required that the information on your nominating petitions be factual um, that's going to get litigated. So we, we made reference to the State Board of Canvassers um, uh, meeting on the 26th. 
if the state board of canvassers deadlocks, which is what I expect around the Tudor Dixon issue, that's going to get litigated and it's going to get litigated fast, right? That will end up in the state Supreme Court in a matter of a couple of days. Um, and they're ultimately going to decide whether she gets ballot access or not, assuming that the board of canvassers deadlocks, which is what I expect. I don't think either of Republican members are going to vote to keep her off the ballot. And I don't think either of the Democratic members are going to vote to put her on. Um, and that means that uh, ultimately the Supremes are going to decide there. So I'm going with, uh, let's say all three of them do not make it. I, I love some chaos. That's how I make money. <laughs> Um, you know, there's been a lot of court cases, um, notably not only the U.S. Supreme Court, but also in the Michigan Supreme Court that seem to have more impact um, on day-to-day -day residents. I think more people are paying attention now to these court races than they have before. Um, you know, who's up for election this year in the Michigan Supreme Court and who's running to fill those seats? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, State Representative um, Kyra Harris-Bolden um, has uh, decided to forego um, running for re-election and is running for the state Supreme Court. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see how she does, um, with that. Um, the, uh, so the, the GOP, um, I, I'm going to let John speak to what's going on on the GOP side. Cause it's a little bit weird with the sitting justice and like, and uh, I'll, I'll let you describe your own tribe there. <laughs> I don't, I just basically have the overall theory on these races. They are so important. Uh, but the way our system is set up right now unless you're in an election year where there's not a lot of noise and those races happen to be funded to a certain level at which you can see it, no one sees it. Um, there's a lot of tension on representative uh, on the Dem side and, and their nominees. Um, there's a lot of money that um, the Bernsteins can have, uh, of course, uh, but there's so, my short story is there's so much noise going on. I just severely doubt that those races will rise to the level of actually being seen and heard. And in effect, what they will be is the sort of the tail on the dog. Um, how did the top of the ticket go was how those folks will end up. Yeah, I think that's right. Great. Well, as always, the Abbott and Costello of Lansing, we appreciate you two so much for joining us on the KJL podcast. Um, maybe shortly after the primary, when the dust settles and all the hand recounts and forensic audits are done, we will have you two back on uh, to talk we'll about what. December. What'd you say? We'll see you in December then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have you guys back on to uh, talk about the general going into the fall. So thank you both so much. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much, Ryan and, uh, and Andy. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you for joining A Key to the Inside, the KJL podcast.